Amen. Take a seat. Well, good evening. Lovely to welcome you. It's good to be together this uh, Sunday evening. Please turn with me, if you would, to uh, Mark chapter 15. It's on page 853. If you're using uh, one of the church Bibles from the back, you shall find out the page in your own Bible if you're not using one of these ones. And we're going to be reading from verse 40 down to chapter 16, verse 8. It's going to be the center of uh, the next wee while together as we gather around God's Word. So Mark chapter 15, verse 40. And when you've got there, keep uh, a finger in the page. But I want to begin just before we hear God's voice as we read, just by uh, asking you a little question. Um, as we gather on a Sunday evening today, what difference does the resurrection of Jesus make to you? Uh, you could be someone listening, either here or at home, good evening if you are watching online, who is a Christian person. And so you believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But it may well be that like me for many years, from when I was a, a boy, really through, I guess, to my early 20s, it, it was something I believed but didn't really connect, join the dots to my everyday life, whether I saw that there were dots to connect or not. You could be someone here this evening as someone who isn't yet a Christian. Uh, you could be of any faith background or none, and you're figuring out what you think about Christianity. And so to you, the resurrection is simply a claim, something you know that Christians believe, but you don't yet feel any weight of. Alternatively, of course, you could be someone for whom the, the claim, the truth that Jesus rose from the dead is a daily source of rich comfort, application, and treasure as you walk through life. My hope and prayer this evening as we turn to God's word now is that wherever you are on that spectrum or any shade in between, that this would be an evening of blessing for you, just as it has been for me to study this passage, that as we hear God's voice and dwell on it together, we may see something fresh and beautiful in the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And that maybe it'll start helping us more and more wherever we're at to join the dots of his risen life to our daily life as we go on taking up our cross and following him. So with that in mind, why don't I lead us in a prayer and then I'll read God's word. Our gracious Lord and heavenly Father, we praise you for the privilege it is to gather together this evening. Thank you that though we are old friends together or new, we are united if we believe in Jesus, in him, and we come now expectant and asking that you by your spirit would speak to us. Please, Father, we pray, would you clear away whatever mists have gathered in front of our eyes and our hearts that obscure Jesus from us. And we ask that as we listen to your voice, he would become more beautiful and more believable to us than anything else that this world has to offer. And would we live day by day in the light of his resurrection. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So, Mark chapter 15, beginning at verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James the Younger, and of Joses, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. 
And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joses, saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Please keep that open in front of you. That is God's words, and we're just going to be anchoring ourselves in it as we go. There's a wee uh, handout on the back of the, no, there's an outline on the back of the handout that uh, you were given as you came in, which if you want to follow along with, you can. Uh, the, the first and briefest point we're going to consider this evening is uh, why Mark addresses so much detail on something that might seem a little bit redundant to us, the fact that Jesus actually was dead. Uh, this is the conclusion of a, a long series of sermons we've been having as a church family in Mark's gospel. And whether you have been with us for the whole ride or whether you've just been here for the last few weeks, or if indeed this is your very first time dropping into Mark, it's worth knowing and remembering that we have come to a point in the gospel where the grand sort of narrative, the action that has been building all the way through this really lean, dramatic, kind of economical with words account has happened. Jesus has been crucified. He has breathed his last. And as we picked up in verse 40, we are literally at the, the site of the cross with the women who are looking on. Uh, Jesus has died. He has cried out in felt forsakenness on the cross. He has accomplished the work that he has come to do. We've been told that the, the great curtain in the temple all the way back in the center of Jerusalem has torn in two and we've had the confession of a hated centurion in verse 39 that truly this man was the son of God. And it's almost like we have a bit of a lull in the narrative, a, a calm after the storm as we take stock as readers with those women, with the centurion, with Pontius Pilate, with Joseph of Arimathea over what has happened. It's striking uh, that, that it is this group of women who mark names now and indeed after the little account about Joseph. A little cluster of, of personal names, something that's not massively usual in Mark, showing that here is a group who have faithfully stuck with him even though at this point they're somewhat fearful and off at a distance. His disciples, those who he's handpicked and gathered, have, have scattered, just as Jesus said they would do. And yet here's a faithful group. And we're told that they have been ministering to Jesus from the beginning, when he was in Galilee, verse 41. For three years, 
They've left behind hearth and home and families. They've heard Jesus' call to follow, and they've served him faithfully. Just as a little kind of Bible geek side note, uh, it's only women and angels in Mark's gospel who we're told minister to Jesus. So a dignified position, one of humble service. And here they are watching on. And one can only imagine their emotions as they look on. Maybe you can try and put yourselves in their shoes. Here is the one who was their teacher and Lord. The implication of verse 40 is that they have viewed the whole thing. They've watched him be cruelly mocked, have the nails driven through his flesh, been lifted up on the cross, felt the, the jolt as the base dropped into the earth, heard the cat calls of the crowd, maybe wondered where their friends, the disciples, have gone. All of it has happened before their gaze, and I just can only think that it must feel like their world has fallen down around them. I notice that, that Mark doesn't actually himself dwell on the details. It doesn't go further and who they are, their relationship to Jesus, and why they're there. His gaze moves on to this man, Joseph of Arimathea, and we get the details of Jesus' burial. And I don't know what you were thinking as I read it out, but the thing that leapt out to me on first reading many, many years ago, and still now, is the emphasis that Mark the writer gives us that we can know Jesus is really dead. Look down with me at verses 44 to 45. A pilot, we're told, was surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead. Most men who suffered the agony of crucifixion lingered on. Verse uh, 44 continues that he summons the centurion and he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned, verse 45, from the centurion, yes, sir, he really is a corpse, he was dead, well, then he grants the corpse to Jesus. We may think if we were marking an essay now that this is quite sort of redundant literary style. Dead, 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 come on, too many repeated words. Now, of course, what we forget sometimes is that back then they didn't have any of the, the word processing tools we use. Repetition was one of the key ways of underlining an absolutely critical truth. Mark needed his first readers, he needed us to know that this man, Jesus, truly was crucified and was died, and then that his dead body was entombed in an irrevocable way. Look at verse 46. Joseph bought a linen shroud, and he took Jesus' body down. He wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock, a tomb typical of the Middle East. If you visited that area or around the eastern end of the Mediterranean, you'll have seen lots of, of cave tombs. And, a crucial detail at the end of 46, he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Now, why, therefore, in a gospel, an account, an eyewitness testimony that is so economical with its words, it's the shortest of the four gospels we have, why this emphasis, why this underlining? I take it that it is so that his readers, then and now, would have real confidence in the eyewitness accounts that they have been given about Jesus. You know, the, the first community who received Mark, we don't know exactly who they were, we don't know much about them, but we can know that they would have been at best a marginalized, at most a persecuted group of early Christians somewhere in uh, Israel, under the occupation of Rome, and needing the encouragement 
that the Lord they worshipped really was the Son of God. They needed to know that there was no cleverly devised myth they were following, that there was no hoax that they had bought into. We know from other sources that in the earliest days of the gospel being preached, that actually the most common accusation against the resurrection was that Jesus didn't really die. You might have heard that yourself. Oh, he just, he fell into a swoon. He hadn't died but was in a coma. Or in fact, it's all made up that there was no execution of a man called Jesus Christ, that it wasn't as bad as was made out. So you can't hang all this weight, you early Christians, on the resurrection. Paul read out a verse from 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians, the earliest New Testament manuscript we have, saying that, yes, if Jesus did not die, if he did not rise, we Christians are to be pitied more than any. So they and we today need to know that we can trust this. Uh, the, the, the cluster of names that I mentioned is unusual in Mark. It's the equivalent of our modern-day footnotes. Some of you will be laboring under the, the needs of a bibliography, whether you're writing a 2,000-word first-year essay or a, a fourth-year PhD thesis. You'll be getting your bibliography lined up. Others of you may well have read books and seen the footnotes showing that what has been said is accurate. Well, that's what these names are doing. It's an invitation to go and check with the sources themselves. Not because Mark, the writer, and God himself wants us to put our faith in a book, but because he wants us to believe, to trust in the one whom this account points to. The eyewitnesses testify of Jesus. Though your Roman overlords back then he might say, hate the idea of a crucified God as weak. Though your Greek peers in your culture may think the idea of worshipping a, a man who died a slave's death unutterably foolish, though your Jewish friends may think that not only is it folly but blasphemy and horrible to say the Son of God might die, you can believe what you've been taught, you can believe what you're reading, you can go on following him and taking up your cross. Think even today of what we might term the, the, the cultured deniers and despisers of the world around us, who would mock faith in Jesus Christ, who would think you were incredibly simple for trusting in the scriptures, who would say, why on earth do you give your Sundays to reading a book, to singing and to sitting, listening to something called a sermon? What's the point? Well, the point is that Jesus is trustworthily the Christ, the Son of God, that he's been presented as throughout the whole gospel so that people might go on following him. Now, I take it that Mark's not only writing to give us that confidence. He does it as he goes because the sharp end of the eyewitness testimony, the final tip of Mark's gospel is the resurrection account in chapter 16, and that's what we're going to move on to now to look at. It's our second point, a revolutionary resurrection, chapter 16. Just to have a, a moment's pause to yourself and think of those moments in your life. They're often recalled with crystal clarity where something happens and you know for a fact that life will never be the same again. It could be a birth. It could be a death. It could be an unexpected bit of good news. 
It could be a, an unlooked-for diagnosis. It could be a shattering world event. It could be any number of things that it just gets engraved, etched on your memory banks. I remember vividly when our eldest child was born, a, a really surprising, overwhelming rush of feelings that actually everything had shifted, that actually life would never be the same again. And that is something, I think, of the feel of this quite enigmatic little account of Jesus' resurrection. It is truly revolutionary, and we're left with these women named, again, rushing away in fear and in trembling. I mean, the first thing that strikes us is that their expectations are massively overturned. Look down with me again at verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, I presume celebrated really with, with lead in their stomachs, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. Uh, they, they hadn't been able to go and anoint Jesus' body because of the Sabbath, but they couldn't bear the idea of such a, a loved remnant, as it were, just being given over to decay without any form of care and expression of love. So they go to anoint Jesus' body with spices. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Maybe there's a bit of freshness in the air, the sun peeking over the horizon. And as they trudged, the thought occurs to them. We're not told who raised it first, but someone quite practically minded in the group says, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? It's a really big stone. In verse 4, we're told that it was very large. You could render that as being it was, it was mega, mega. It's just like big piled upon big. And yet, it begins. They saw that the stone had been rolled back. And really, this is the, the first revolution, pun intended, of one that will go on to utterly upend the entirety of human history. Verse 5, they go in, they enter the tomb. I imagine they crept in. They'd have been a little bit daunted. And then they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. Alarmed is a really like Enid Blyton word for this. You, you can imagine, it's quite a genteel word for fright. Really, they were terrified. They were absolutely aghast. It's actually the same word, the same root word used of Jesus back in the Garden of Gethsemane. Here is something that really gets in among them because maybe there's an initial lurch, is that Jesus? And then they realize, no, it's not. It's someone they don't know. So even at this point, their entire anticipation of the day has just been turned on its head. But more than that, we see that their fear is countered. This young man, in words so reminiscent of God himself, the most repeated command and promise in Scripture, says, do not be alarmed. Don't be afraid. Here's an angel, a messenger of God, one who is bringing a divine message in a divine way. He's a herald announcing something of enormous import. And we can tell that because of the content of his message. And it's the key revolution of the resurrection. Death itself is overturned. I love every one of the uh, angelic appearances of the resurrection in the Gospels. They always sound to our ears so understated. But try and put yourselves in their shoes. Verse 6, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place 
where they laid him. It's an extraordinary thing to say. Literally, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, the crucified one. Jesus of Nazareth, that real man from a real place who was physically killed just three days ago in the place that we all know, he is not here. That one whose flesh was torn by Roman implements of torture, the one mocked by his own people, the one who was condemned to a traitor and slave's death, he has been raised. There is some power greater than Rome, greater than death itself, greater than sorrow, greater than decay, greater than the despair you're just feeling. He has been raised up and lifted up and has been taken out from this place of sorrow and death and brought back to new life. He is not here. And then the little um, tour guide to the new world's point. See, here's the place where they laid him. Not only is the absence of Jesus, the absence that changes everything drawn to, but we're shown that actually the place where he physically laid was gone. 18 words in Greek in that sentence. And a totally new world opens up. You see, these women knew back then, in a way more intimate than, than we would know today, that dead people stayed dead. I doubt very much that this was the first ever laying out of a body they'd attended. I wonder how many times, especially for the older women, theirs had been the hands that poured perfume onto the flesh of a dead loved one. They're under no illusions that death is the end. No Jew, whatever particular creed of Judaism they came from, looked for an individual to rise from the dead before the end of time. No Greek or anyone influenced by Greek thinking would have even thought that was desirable. Because for the Greek world, if the soul left the body, the soul was better off because the flesh was bad. Why would you ever think that reuniting the two was somehow an idea? This was something totally new totally revolutionary, totally out of the ordinary. In fact, the only precedent for this was the teaching of Jesus himself. You can see that that's ultimately what the angel tells them. He gives them their marching orders in verse 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Jesus predicted that this would happen. And yet they are fearful. They forget, they flee from this place. But as they flee, they are fleeing along really what is the ultimate dividing line in all of human history. On one side, there is fear that ultimately rejects Jesus. And on the other, there is faith that embraces him. Throughout the gospel, all the way through, one of the themes of Mark has been that of who's an insider to the kingdom of God and who's an outsider. And all the way through, there's been surprises. The the religious elite, who you'd think would be on the inside, by their rejection of Jesus, put themselves on the outside. And then on the other side of the spectrum, those who are the, the morally outcast, the religiously desperate, those who are far off, the lepers, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, they are on the inside. I've actually just seen that with the centurion an agent of Rome, part of their imperial kind of war machine, he's confessed that Jesus is the Son of God. And yet at this point in the narrative, in quite a shocking turn, the disciples who've been on the inside have legged it. They've abandoned Jesus. They fled. 
And even at this point, the women are fearful. It's like those extraordinary mountain ridge lines. You might be familiar with Striding Edge in the Lake District or somewhere on the Coolins in Skye. Down the one side, they can follow Jesus as he's commanded. And down the other, they can abandon him. And Mark leaves us there. In God's providence, this is the ending of Mark that we have. If you'd like to talk about verses 9 to 20, please grab me afterwards. I'd love to point you in the direction of some resources to make up your own mind on, on some of the details around that, which we don't have time to go into now. But right here, Mark leaves us on a cliffhanger. But he's given us the clues as to how this is going to end. Because right in the middle of the accounts of the women, we've got Joseph, a man who has put his trust in Jesus and who identifies himself with him. Now, just to close the last few minutes we have, I want us just to think of three uh, implications we could draw out from what the angel says, three truths that are going to hopefully anchor us more in Joseph's camp of faith than any camp of fear. And that's there in our third point. You can see them laid out. This was the first day of the rest of their lives, but I hope that you'll agree, and maybe even as you meditate on it, that really this is the first day of your life, of my life, if you are someone who trusts and follows Jesus. Here's the first thing. Know who Jesus is. As the angel announces that they are seeking Jesus of Nazareth, the crucified one, we are being invited to consider throughout the gospel everything we've heard in the light now of the resurrection. He is the true man that he claimed to be. He really is the Jesus of history. He really is the one who's announced in chapter 1, verse 1, as the Christ, the Son of God, kingly terms. Here is God's long-promised Messiah. Here's just a few ways Jesus is spoken of throughout the gospel. He's the Lord. He's the one who baptizes with the Spirit. He's the Holy One of God, the stronger man than Satan who casts out demons. He's the preacher of the kingdom. He's the true and final prophet of God. He's the fulfillment of all of the pictures of Moses who teaches and feeds his people in the wilderness. He's the great physician who's come to heal the sin-sick and the broken. He's the son of man, the universal king. He's the one with authority to forgive sins. He's the bridegroom. He's the heir of David. He's the one who stills the storm. He's the one who raises the dead. And as we've just seen throughout the last few weeks, he is the suffering servant. Not only the universal son of man, but the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so even though as the shepherd is struck, the sheep of the disciples scatter, well, the sheep have a shepherd who's been raised to life and they can hear his voice and follow him. Don't know what you make of Jesus this evening, but whatever your view of him, meditate on him in the light of the resurrection. He really is who he says he is. And that is the single best news in the world we can have. Because he is the one who died for you. He's the one who died for me. He's the one who lives now and who we can trust. And as we trust him, we can follow him. It's the second thing. Hear his gracious call to follow. 
You know, we may not think much of, of it as the angel says, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you. But actually, that is an extraordinary extension of Jesus' mercy. You know, Jesus throughout the gospel has called people to repent and believe, to turn from their sins and to turn back to God and then to follow Jesus, to take up their cross and walk after the one himself who is crucified. And the disciples have heard that call, they followed, but as we've already said, they have scattered. Jesus predicted that they would and he predicted that Peter, even Peter, would deny him three times. And sure enough, before the cock crow, that happened on that terrible night. And yet here Jesus is, saying to these women, his dignified first messengers, go tell the disciples. He doesn't say tell those cowards. He doesn't say call those chickens. He doesn't pause sardonically before saying Peter's name. He says tell the disciples and Peter. Tell the scattered and the denier that Jesus is going before them follow him. He extends his arms, as it were, and says, look, come back to me. The sheep are regathered, even Peter's regathered, and even we are regathered. You know, there'll be someone here tonight who believes in Jesus, who confesses him as Lord, and yet you will know in your heart of hearts that you are wandering from him. Maybe your heart's cold towards him, could be there's a particular aspect of life which you're, you're keeping for yourself and not uh, giving to him fully as the Lord of your life. You could be coveting or even cultivating a particular sin. You could simply be battered, bruised by the world, the flesh and the devil. I'm wondering if you've got it in you just to take even one more step on that path of following Christ. Well, here the shepherd says, come. He regathers his flock. He does it every time we hear his word, every Sunday, every time we turn to the scriptures ourselves. Come, follow me. Let's accept that gracious call and invitation. And finally, as we do so, let's trust his words. I'm not going to elaborate on this one, really. Simply to underline, just as he told you. Just as he told you. I can only imagine that sent the women, after they calmed down, to reconsider what Jesus had said to them. Why not do that? Why not over the next week? Go back over Mark's Gospel. Look at what Jesus said. And it is underlined with all the authority of the one who conquered death itself. We can take him at his word. And so rather than the fear of the women, we can have faith. Faithful courage like Joseph, who was a member of the ruling council, stood to lose a lot when he asked for the body of Christ. Faith like those we know the women and the disciples showed, as ultimately they go out following Jesus at great cost to themselves and preaching the message of the cross. There is a risen Savior who speaks to us today. And if we won't harden our hearts, and if we will hear his voice, then he is ours. We can follow him. We can listen to him. We can serve him. We can even be used by him. We've reflected on that today, 20 years of our own church, in all of our weaknesses and failings. C. 
seeking to hear God's voice, to preach Christ, and in the power of the Spirit to follow him. And God is gracious, and he uses even those as us. So though I don't know what your way looks like in the next week, month, years, I have no idea even of mine or my family's, we can know one thing, that though it leads through the valley of the shadow of death, we need fear no evil, because Jesus walked that way first. He died, but he is not there. He rose, and so life is what awaits us, and victory in Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your Son, Jesus, has risen, that he is risen indeed. And though we will not see him in Galilee, we will see him in the promised new creation. Until that day comes, Father, keep us, we pray, confessing that he truly is the Christ, the Son of God. Keep us walking after him, following him, taking up our cross daily. And keep us hearing his gracious voice, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to close with a couple of hymns of praise. First, thine be the glory. And then closing with in Christ alone.